Hi, we're here with season two of the Ethics Lab podcast. I'm Dr. George Sakaritis, and I'm here with Dr. Gregory Peterson. And we have a special guest as a part of the Populism and the Recovery of Intellectual Virtues workshop that we've been holding here at the campus of South Dakota State University, Dr. Heather Baddeley. Heather, how are you doing? I'm doing great, George. How are you? I am excellent. It was a fun week. I think we got a lot done. And uh, we would like to spend a little time with you and have a little conversation and uh, get some insight to our listeners about your work and ethics in general. Uh, So I'm going to turn it over to Greg and we'll jump right in. Thank you, George. We're happy to have uh, Dr. Baddeley here with us today. Uh, She's here in part because of a generous grant through the South Dakota Humanities Council. And Dr. Baddeley was one of our plenary speakers for the Populism and Recovery of Intellectual Virtues workshop. So we're, we're happy to have her here today, and uh, we just have a few questions we're going to ask her and hopefully have some good dialogue. So we're just going to begin a little bit talking about her work on closed-mindedness, which is a major project for her right now. So we're just going to ask, Heather, how did you become interested in closed-mindedness? So thanks. Thanks to both of you for doing this and for hosting the Populism and Recovery of Intellectual Virtues workshop. And it's been a wonderful three days. We've had a blast. Um, So I'm delighted to be here. So closed-mindedness. So I started working on an area of epistemology, the theory of knowledge, called virtue epistemology when when I was in graduate school. And virtue epistemology sort of combines questions about good character with questions about how we know. And so virtue epistemology tries to give analyses of what are called intellectual virtues, so qualities that make us good thinkers, like open-mindedness and intellectual humility and intellectual autonomy and creativity. And I had spent Several decades. Well, not several. That's an exaggeration. Almost two. (laughs) Thinking about qualities that make us good thinkers and spending some time thinking about intellectual humility and open-mindedness. And I happened right around 2015, 2016, to start thinking about intellectual vices. So I'd done a little bit of work on intellectual vices beginning in 2010, thinking about epistemic self-indulgence and epistemic insensitivity. And intellectual vices are qualities that make us bad thinkers. So in 2015 and 2016, as listeners know, in the United States, we had an important presidential election And it struck me that it was more important than ever to start thinking about the qualities that make us bad thinkers, Uh, in part because I think some of our leaders have some of those qualities, arguably. So I wanted to try to figure out what closed-mindedness is and whether it's always... A vice. I think it's usually an intellectual vice, so it usually produces lots of bad effects. If we have false beliefs that we're closed-minded about, then we're not willing to engage with other people 
about our beliefs. And so that enables us to sustain the false beliefs we have. And we can even increase our confidence in those beliefs and compound those beliefs. So we can end up believing more false beliefs in order to support our original false belief. So that's part of how I got started thinking about it. Okay, so on, on that track, you've talked about close-mindedness and how it can be a virtue. So, you know, if you say, uh, I think closed-mindedness is a virtue, people might kind of bristle at that and wonder what you're talking about. So how would you explain close-mindedness as a virtue? Most of the time, I think closed-mindedness is an intellectual vice. So when we're unwilling or unable to engage seriously with sources, with evidence, with alternative points of view, most of the time that's epistemically vicious. And it's epistemically or intellectually vicious in the sense that it leads to really bad effects. So for instance, we can be biased Racial bias, for instance, is an example of closed-mindedness. So most of the time, it's going to be bad. That said, I think there are some unusual situations where closed-mindedness might be a good thing. And so I've been thinking about what I'm calling epistemically hostile environments. So environments that are polluted thoroughly with falsehoods. So for folks who are familiar with George Orwell's book, 1984, think about a situation like that, where you are surrounded by falsehoods. Falsehoods like two plus two is five and ignorance is strength are being blared out of every screen that surrounds you. And there's a ministry of truth that's controlling what's being produced right, in your environment. So I think in an environment like that, if you're, an, if you're a person who has knowledge, you know that two plus two is four, you know that ignorance isn't strength, right? You know that the Holocaust happened, right? Then if you wake up in that environment and you know those things, being closed-minded might actually produce better effects than being open-minded would produce. And they, they might produce better effects for you as the agent who has knowledge. So they might prevent you from amassing epistemic opportunity costs. So, and what I mean by that is they might prevent you from spending time engaging with the screens and the people around you who have a bunch of false beliefs when you could be pursuing other projects that are more worthwhile. They, if you're closed-minded, you're also more likely to hold on to your true belief in that situation. And I think in a situation like that, the risk of losing your true belief is much higher than the situation, the sort of political situation that we're currently in, at least in the United States, or at least the political situation many of us are currently in in the United States. So, and another, there are a couple of other ways of thinking about epistemically hostile environments. So 1984 is one example. 
Um, you might think of Mike Judge's film, Idiocracy. So again, another fictional case, but you can imagine that you wake up in an environment in which people through neglect, right, have allowed their intellectual capacities to devolve, as it were, right? They're not reliable sources anymore, right? And so here too, we might think, Close-mindedness could be a good thing. So it could be a good thing for you. I think there are interesting questions about whether it's a good thing for the other people in the environment and whether it's a good thing for the environment itself. And in extreme cases, like the idiocracy and like George Orwell's 1984, we're really unlikely to change people's minds or make the environment as a whole better through interaction, right? So for instance, interacting with the Ministry of Truth usually is not gonna go well, right? I mean, they will torture you, and the, right? Okay, so that like, that's not gonna go well. Um, so, right, so um, in, in situations like that, closed-mindedness can be beneficial to you And if you were open-minded, you're not likely to convince other people to change their minds. You're not likely to have an overall positive effect on the environment around you. Other people aren't going to believe you. It's just going to get you killed. Okay. So our current environment, I think, our current sort of political discourse in the United States, I don't think is at that level. I think we we are not close to the level of pollution that we see in Orwell's 1984. We have more epistemic pollution in our current political discourse than we used to have. And we might wonder whether there are segments of the internet, right? Sort of some parts of the internet where we have sort of full saturation of falsehoods. So I think there are pockets of hostile environments within our current environmental political discourse, but we aren't yet at, at that stage. So I think when, I think most of the time when we're closed minded, we're vicious, but there are these, these cases where we should think about whether closed mindedness could be a good thing. And one other thing to mention here is For some agents, some people in our environment, our current political environment in the U.S., that environment is hostile to them Um, So, to some extent, right? So women and people of color, there are norms that saturate our current environment that are ubiquitous that will deny women and people of color credibility. We'll fail, we'll, we typically, if we absorb those norms from our surrounding environment, we will fail to see women and, co- women and people of color as sources of knowledge. So women and people of color, when, they, when other people aren't treating them like sources of knowledge, when they know that they are, it's completely appropriate, I think, for them to be closed-minded when they're confronted with the idea that they are not epistemic agents or aren't sources of knowledge. Yeah. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely helps. And I think it's, I mean, 
it's been great having you speak about that this week, and it's it's a good project. Um, I just want to mention for Chuck Volan out there, I know he's happy that you mentioned Idiocracy. He's one of our colleagues here at <laughs> South Dakota State. It often comes up in conversation, so thank you for that. Yeah, it's a fun film. Yeah. All right, so uh, we would be interested in hearing a bit about your future projects. So we know uh, some of this involves closed-mindedness. In our workshop this week, you also talked a bit about uh, liberatory virtues, and, and so that might be interesting to hear about too. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, so I'm working on a book on closed-mindedness, and I think, as I've said, that closed-mindedness is an unwillingness or inability to engage with relevant sources and evidence and perspectives and it can be an unwillingness to revise belief. So what I plan to do in the book is try to talk about the situations that make closed-mindedness vicious and talk a little bit about these hostile environments and situations in which uh, closed-mindedness might be intellectually virtuous and address closed-mindedness of groups and also try to think about how we can fix epistemic vice. So epistemic vice is like closed-mindedness. And one of, the, one of the things I'll be exploring is the idea that we may not be blameworthy for, be- for becoming closed-minded initially. And again, you can think of cases of racial bias, for instance. We might, growing up, in the contemporary U.S. absorb those from our environment without being blameworthy for coming to have them. We may be blameworthy once we realize that we have them for doing nothing to change them, but we might not be blameworthy for initially acquiring them. So that's, um, that's sort of a summary of the overall book project. And I've been thinking about liberatory virtue and specifically about humility and whether humility could be a liberatory virtue. And on the face of it, Humility looks like the least likely trait that could be a liberatory virtue. So liberatory virtues are roughly qualities that contribute to resisting oppression and achieving liberation and taking steps toward creating a a society where everybody can flourish, not just people who were formerly oppressed, but everyone. And so I think the intuitive thing to think is humility isn't going to help with that at all, right? Humility is more likely to prevent us from resisting when we should be resisting, right? It's more likely to make us defer. So what I try to to argue is that there's still a space for humility to be a liberatory virtue, that humility can prevent us from jumping to the conclusion that the person who's oppressing us is an inhuman monster, for instance. And that's not to say that we shouldn't draw the conclusion that the person who's oppressing us is doing things that are morally wrong or that they've committed crimes or that they might have vices themselves. But there's a difference between drawing that conclusion and drawing the conclusion that the person who's oppressing us is an inhuman monster to see them as no longer human. So I think that's one way that humility can help. Now, 
you might think, okay, well, that works for people who are likely to be arrogant. People who are likely to jump to a conclusion and be arrogant, right, are going to have to worry about that. But people who are oppressed aren't likely to be arrogant. They're much more likely to be humble to a fault, which is what I call servility. They're likely to go overboard with respect to humility. They're not likely to have too little of it. They're likely to have too much, right? So we could be, as people who are oppressed, we might have gaps in our confidence, for instance. And if we're humble about, humble about, the, uh, about those gaps to excess, then we might focus on them all the time. We might overemphasize them. We might worry about them. We might constantly be thinking about them. And that might prevent us from resisting, right? Because then not only are, do we have these gaps in confidence, but we're worried about them all the time. So that would be an example of servility, where we're being too humble, and the virtue of liberatory humility allows us to rein that degree of humility in. So it prevents humility from being excessive, from being from from us being humble to a fault or from humility going overboard. And so in this case where we have the virtue of humility, we would recognize our gaps in confidence, we'd be attentive to them and we'd own them appropriately. So we would realize we had them and we might care about them, but we're not going to overemphasize them or obsess about them or freak out about them. We might admit them to ourselves and even make efforts to try to change them. Like for instance, by meeting with allies or going to confidence raising and consciousness raising groups and this sort of thing. So um, that's another project that I've been working on. And in the future, uh, I'll be working with a group of several psychologists on the concept of political humility. And that I think is connected to liberatory humility, but I'm not exactly sure how. And so I'm going to be working on that. And the conversations that we've had in the last three days will really, uh, will inform that work for me have helped me try to think about differences between political humility as a civic virtue, as a democratic virtue, as a moral virtue, as an intellectual virtue. But I'll be thinking roughly about humility as being attentive to and owning our weaknesses and our limits in the context of politics. That's great. And as I mentioned in the conference, I'm, I'm big on humility, at least as a concept. I need to work on it probably personally. But I, I actually have some work I'd like to do with moral virtue and humility. So I'm, I'm anxious yeah. to see where you go with this. Yeah. This will be exciting. Okay, so quickly, we're adding a quirky question this year to our podcast just to get a little insight into our guests' uh, psyche. So your quirky question for this podcast is, what is the strangest conference food you have ever eaten? Okay, so I think the strangest conference food I've ever eaten, eaten strangest in the sense that it, I had never eaten it before, was sea cucumber. So I went to a pretty amazing conference um, in Taipei, uh, this was several years ago. It was a conference on virtues East and West, hosted by Chan Kuo Mi. And 
they took us out for an emperor's dinner. And one of the courses was sea cucumber. And it was, it was delicious actually, but it was real. Like it was, it was, I'd never had it before. So it was just kind of cool. I'm going to have to give a follow-up to that. Just, okay. So like, what did sea cucumber taste like? Not chicken, I assume. Yeah. It's okay. So it like, I, I, I've only had it once. So I'm, I'm not an expert on how it tastes. To me, it tasted like the sauce that it was in. So it could be that it's the kind of food that doesn't have like a strong flavor itself. So it tasted like the sauce that it was in. What was really interesting about it is the texture, which is sort of hard to describe. Yeah, yeah. That is awesome. And from the nods in the room after you said sea cucumber, I think that you've you've hit it out of the park with that one. So, um, so that is it for this episode of the Ethics Lab podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and uh we can have those links up for you. Until next time, when Greg and I sample sea cucumber live on air. <laughs> this may or may not happen. Thank you very much, and have a good night.